told Pastor Mike, I've been telling him for months actually, that a name is very important for your child. Strong name or a good name, a name that the, the child will be able to uh, fit into, you know, like Mark is what I suggested. You know, that's a good name. It's, means mighty warrior. And so I thought, you know, that's a great name. So uh, obviously they don't give much for my opinion, as you can tell. Uh, that's, that's right. We'll let them still work here. Um, I remember when I was a youth pastor, I, I started April Fool's Day of 1987. I should tell you something, right? Oh, well, I, yeah, I was, my, my church wasn't a huge church, 200 people and our youth group, just a handful of, of kids. But the happening uh, church and youth group in town was the Assemblies Church. I mean, their youth group had literally hundreds of kids. And their youth pastor was really cool. Steve was his name. Well, I was kind of surprised, actually, when, when my phone rang one day and he called me up and initiated, let's get together and just, you know, say hi and welcome to the area. And he showed me his facilities, which were all, you know, state-of-the-art stuff. And, um, but just a neat, humble, quality guy. He had a cool car, I remember that. And he would, every once in a while would ask me out for, for lunch, and we would, you know, what do you do about this? And it was just was neat, a neat guy. Some of our kids, actually in our church, weren't going to our youth group, uh, but they were going to their youth group. They had a cool youth group. It's my, my, I might do the same thing. Well, one day, Steve just quit. And just out of the blue, just quit, and no one knew what happened. Uh, went on to Milwaukee. We were up in, in Appleton at the time. Went on to Milwaukee, and, and uh, word came out what had transpired. And I had one of his key kids. I remember she actually went to our church. Her parents did, but just a sharp, sharp, sharp girl. She's in my office because uh, word came out that Steve not only walked away from Christ, but had embraced this sexual deviant lifestyle. And... Uh, I just remember her eyes, she's talking to me. I, I hadn't heard this yet. But, you know, she's just uh, crushed, and her faith is crushed. That's the worst part. And she was saying, Mark, he told me about how I should be holy, and how I should love Jesus and stand up for him no matter what. And I was doing that. But surely he knows more than I do, and if he's been able to go through, figure all this out, and decide that it's not real... Maybe all the stuff he's told me probably isn't real. When a spiritual leader fails, the fallout is just huge. Just huge. News about the priestly pedophile stuff and just the pain that somebody you you trust, somebody who is is claiming to follow God and walk with God to, to do such a thing. You know, I've got a list in my Bible. Uh... 20 names on it now. I've been keeping it for a while of personal friends of mine in the ministry or some celebrity pastors too who have fallen morally. In the past uh, few weeks, I've added four new names to the list. Three of them were good friends of mine. I mean, are good friends of mine, I guess. Pastors in the Alliance. One of them had, had a mega church in the South. I mean, 5,000 people and satellites, and he was an author and all this. So, you know, you, you get enough of those kind of things, and it just can create a huge skepticism. Is it any reason why folk outside are going, well, the church, yeah, I know all about the church. The media tells me all about you guys. And if you're in it, you sometimes know much more 
It can just be disillusioning. So we're doing a series on soul watchers. What does God say about the spiritual leadership in the church? And, you know, it's interesting. Last week we looked at the what of soul watchers. What's, what's the job description? What, what are they supposed to do? And this week what we want to look at is the who behind the soul watchers. More important, this is more significant, because you know, as well as I do, having a job description is important. But you're going to serve out of who you are. And out of who you are, that's going to determine what you do, and, and who you are is going to determine how you do it and why you do it. And so the who, very important. And God has, has not been shy in his word about letting us know his understanding of what the who needs to be. And so if you've got your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy 3. Now, as you turn, let me give you just some big picture stuff. In your New Testament, there are three books that are written to pastors. First and Second Timothy and Titus. And, and Timothy and Titus and their churches, you know, Timothy was the pastor of the church at, at Ephesus. It's like in modern-day Turkey. And Titus was on an island called Crete, just south of, of Greece. And, and these guys are getting ready to get elders. And, and Paul says, when you choose your elders, let me tell you, very, very important who you choose. We need to keep in mind as well that in this day, there were no... Uh, separate Awana leaders or small group leaders or, or ministry leaders, if, if those were the elders. And so as we go through this, this is not just for an, an elder office, I, primarily, yeah, but on a secondary level, very real level. This is God's understanding of all of those who would be in leadership and represent him and do what he's called them to do. So Paul starts off Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.1. He says, here's a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. That word overseer, just real quick, last week we mentioned, and this will help you as you read through the New Testament, three different words for, for this office church leadership. Uh, you've got overseer, you've got um, elder, and you've got pastor or shepherd. It's all the same words, and they're used interchangeably. You look at the text we went over last week, 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2. He says, next slide. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, or as overseers. Here we see all three words talking about the exact same person. Elders, overseers, pastors, they're all kind of all kind of combined. So he's talking to these guys and he says, Okay, um, if anyone sets his heart on being an, an overseer, he desires a noble task, now the overseer must be above reproach. And if it was me, I would put like a, a call in there because everything after this is going to be him unpacking what above reproach means. What this means, uh, literally, cannot be taken a hold of. What does that mean? Right? Uh, if you look at this guy's life, you won't say, well, he's a pretty good guy, but there's this one area over here. 
Or, you know, he's got it mostly together, but he's got this one thing, and it's just this one area is not really given to Christ. And then the elder, he says, no, none of that. They're not perfect. But, but Titus and Titus will call it blameless. But generally speaking, you look at this guy's life. He's making progression. He's moving forward. He's reached a level of spiritual maturity. And so then he goes to, goes to unpack that. And let's, let's read this. Follow along with me. He says, now the overseer must be above reproach. Now he's going to unpack what that means. The husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with the outsiders so they will not fall into the disgrace and into the devil's trap. If you go through the terms, for me, this is helpful for me. I think there are at least four categories that they, they fall into. Maybe you divide it into more or less, whatever. But moral, I say that there are, there's a group of moral characteristics. Uh, temperate, which basically is clear thinking. He doesn't have a lot of other, other things messing up his uh, worldly stuff, messing up his thinking. He's got Bible values, Bible priorities. He's, he's temperate. Self-controlled. He's respectable. He's not given to drunkenness. Actually, the word is tipsy. Uh, he's not regarding alcohol, tipsy. No, he's not that. Uh, not a lover of money. Uh, has a good reputation with those who are outside the church. Here, a while back, I was having brain surgery. It's kind of a common thing. I just thought I'd have brain surgery. Uh, it's, it's a little bit more serious than that. But uh, I remember I met with the surgeon. And he was a winsome man. He was dressed flashy. He was very uh, nice guy. Liked him. He was a neat guy. But I asked a question that you would probably ask the surgeon as well. You probably have. How many of these have you done? That's what I wanted to know. And you know, he said, oh, I had 200. I said, well, have you met with success? He said, well, I'm still employed. <laughs> I said, well, okay, I guess that'll work. Um, The church is in the transformation business. We don't sell here uh, conversions. Raise your hand, sign a card, come forward, say the prayer. If, in fact, that's all we did, then Paul would say the only prerequisite for this, this elder person is that he said the prayer. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for transformation. I mean, the way we say it is we want to transform Erie by introducing people to a transformational relationship with Jesus. This is really kind of what Jesus told us to do, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, when he said, go into all the world and make disciples. Same, same thing. Um, but disciple transform from the inside out. When you're having surgery, you don't care if the person is sincere, nice, polite, kind. You want to know, can they do this? When you're looking for transformation, you don't care if the person has been here a long time, if they're nice, how they dress. You, is this real for them? Have they been changed? Do they, have they experienced a transformation? You know, you get towards the end of the list. Paul says, this person can't be a recent convert. And there's nothing against recent converts. Everybody who's a convert at some point was a recent convert, right? So that's, that's not the deal. Um, 
Scripture tells us that, that regarding the gospel, there are t- people who will embrace it with joy. They do. And you know such, you know such people. And, and they've embraced it with joy, and you're so excited. But then, according to Scripture, sometimes trials come. They might walk away. Or, or temptations come. And they might walk away. And so, Paul is saying, make sure that this person has weathered the storm. I mean, if you're on a plane, you're on a 767, and you're flying through an electrical storm, high, high winds, do you want a kid who just graduated from flight school just behind a simulator? He's got zero hours of flying experience, but he's read a lot of books on it. He knows that this is... You probably want some gray, don't you? You want somebody who's done this. For, for They've logged a lot of hours. Because if they've logged a lot of hours, they've hit other storms. And they've been able to manage, and they, they're one with their plane. They, they, they know how it, how it feels. They know how to maneuver. And what Paul is saying is, when the church is after transformations, you have to have people who are transformed. They're not perfect, but they've been transformed. And they, they, they have weathered the storms. Their, their goal is to help sheep have their faith grow through the storms. And so, oh, by golly, they need to have gone through temptations and still be strong. Taking a hit, taking the loss, they need to have gone through the storms and still be strong, held on, even though they might not understand. So, so Paul says there needs to be a moral characteristic about them. They need to be changed. Then that's the second list. And he says, says I call it interpersonal. Uh, hospitable, not violent, or it's regarding people actually, but gentle, not quarrelsome. You know, it's, it's, I first wanted to write that this was like a commitment to people, commitment to the flock. But I, I don't know if that's the case. If you've walked with Jesus long enough, then you begin to love what he loves. I mean, you can actually go through lots of, through discipline, if you're disciplined enough, have lots of good things in your life. But you can't fake having walked with Jesus, beginning to smell like him. Well, what did Jesus love? Well, John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. It's not the globe, and it wasn't like in the trees and the water, and we've got to make sure that there's ecology's fine. Uh, ecology's okay for a Christian. But that's not what that verse is talking about. He loves us. He loves people. He loved him so much that he sent his son. Jesus is talking. He says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He loves the sheep so much he's willing to die for him. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming... He abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus says, a shepherd, you know, because he cares for the sheep. Next next text, next line. It says, when he saw the crowds, Jesus had compassion on them. His gut was stirred. He loved people because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He's telling us the the story of the uh, prodigal son. And he's painting a picture to the people about who God the Father is. He says, but while he was still a long way off, that's the prodigal, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. That would have been a, a embarrassing, humiliating thing for a stalwart, sophisticated Jewish man. So Jesus is so countercultural here. He's saying, yeah, but that's the way God is. That's the way I am regarding people. 
Next. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he has asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Guy's somewhat deluded, but that's okay because Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. Now, Jesus knew that this guy wasn't going to do it. This guy was going to walk away, and this is the rich young ruler. He was, he was going to turn on one of the greatest offers to be the 13th apostle. He, he just walked away. But he's not one of the elect. But still, Jesus loved him. A shepherd. That's what he's saying. Somebody who's, who you're going to elect to be over your sheep. Better have a heart of a shepherd. They need to love the people. Can you, can you imagine a, 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 a shepherd who's very good, skilled shepherd? He's written books on, on shepherding. He's got the, but he doesn't care for the sheep. Hates sheep. Doesn't like the sheep at all. You know, what, how is he going to shepherd? What do you think? Is he going to be nice and kind to the sheep? Oh, no. You know, you messing with sheep, you get pretty dirty. You got to do some filthy things. Is he going to do his job well? Might he be negligent? Might he be verbally uh, abusive to the sheep? Assuming that they can't hear or understand him, probably not caring if they could. Might he be actually harsh, violent with the sheep? On the other hand, what if there's a shepherd? Good, he's got his skills together. He knows, but he loves the sheep. He's patient with them. He cares for them. He loves them. They're going to be Go over and above for them? Absolutely. And so Paul's saying, when you get somebody, when you bring somebody in to be a leader, God, I have heart of a shepherd. I was at the uh, University of Michigan with my whole brain thing. Mayo went to uh, University of Cincinnati, and they didn't have any answers. Went to University of Michigan. Met with a guy, Sid Gilman, Dr. Sid Gilman, supposed to be the cerebellar expert in, in the world. Uh, they always say, right? But I met with a neat guy, but he had an intern with him. I guess like a 50-year resident person, you know, um, who we talked to first of all. This guy had horrific bedside manner. I mean, he was disrespectful to Therese and myself all over the place. I mean, he would, we, we he had my records, and he was like, <sighs> I mean, he knew. I had my, my records were, it was going to take a while to go through this stuff. And he's like, <sighs> so we'd ask a question. What about, he's like, <clears throat> looking through this stuff. Wait here. We'd ask, well, what about, <clears throat> wait here. Well, then he came back in with Sid and Dr. Gilman. And they were, Sid was, Gilman was a wonderful man, very loving, neat guy. And I wanted to say, didn't say it, I'm a wimp, but I wanted to say, Excuse me, this is a training hospital, right, Mr. Intern Person? You're learning great, intelligent, wise things from this man, right? Yes. You better be learning his bedside manner as well, because in all honesty, if my life depended on you, I would not come see you again. It was that awful. Can you imagine such a, 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 a person? And again, what he's saying is when you get elders, they've got to have a, a, a shepherd's heart. They have to have... Interpersonally, they have to care. A third category he gives 
is Scripture, the Word of God. As far as your elders go, they need to be able to teach. We went over this a lot last week, so I'm not going to touch on it too much, other than that the, the Word of God has to be something that they know, that they live, that they love. Word of God directs, not their compassion. If it's just their compassion directs, we can get people in trouble, right? The word of God directs, though they're compassionate people. And then fourth is family integrity. Uh, Both 1 Timothy 3 and uh, Titus 1 will talk about this. Next slide. It says, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of the God's church? That's a great rhetorical question. If things are a mess at home, why in the world would you put this person in charge? Now, the uh, term for, for children, the grammar, the syntax, the context, would uh, most believe that this deals with uh, children who are at home, who are underneath the father's authority, responsibility. Not necessarily they're grown, they go off, they do. But, but kids at home, how is the home? How is, how is the dad's concern and energy level and desire and discipline and focus and discipling? Where, where, where is that at? And then the second aspect, though, is with the spouse. It says, now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife. You know, in both lists, First Timothy 3 and Titus 1, uh, the above reproach, blameless thing, when they unpack it, the very first thing they say is this, faithful to his wife. Actual words mean, or actual words, literal translation is, the husband of one wife. What in the world does that mean? Husband of one wife. This has been a huge issue of controversy in the church over the years. I grew up in a church which definitely had a strong view of what this means in, in, in interpreting. So we have to look at what this means. Several, was well, a while back, we had a subcommittee of the governing board, and we said, you guys, check out what this phrase means and bring us back your findings. And so a paper was uh, produced, came back to the board, the board discussed it, tweaked it, or ratified it. You can pick that up if you want on the way out of here this morning. It's at the information desk. But this is so important that we interpret this properly because we don't want to be putting words in God's mouth, saying that he said things that he didn't say. You get in trouble when you do that. And why this is so significant, a lot is on the line. Because if we permit what God has prohibited, well, we run the risk of having leadership that his blessing does not rest on. And you don't want to be there. On the other hand, if you uh, limit or prohibit what God has allowed, you run a, a different risk. Perhaps God has given the church leaders to lead this church that he desires, that he's empowered, that he's equipped, that he wants to work through the church. But the church has said, no, we're not going to listen to those guys. No, they can't be a part of it. Sorry. If, if your requirements are stricter than God's, you just, can't, you just can't go down this road. Lots of hurt and pain can come out of that. And can turn a lot. So what does, what does God say? I have no problem. This sounds so bad. I have no problem hurting people if it means a stand on God's word. This is what God's word says. I'm so sorry. I don't want anyone to be hurt by that. But we've got to stick to God's word. But you don't want to hurt people or turn them away from something God doesn't, God doesn't say. 
So this is a, a pretty significant issue. So as we, we look at what this means, we kind of got to try to interpret what this means. Well, different ideas have been given over the years what this one-woman-man thing means. Some have said, well, elders cannot be involved in polygamy. That's what this means. It's one woman, man. You can't have more than one wife at a time. That's what it means. Uh, and polygamy was, was a practiced deal among the Jews in, in Israel, not so much in Ephesus, where he's writing to, primarily because you could have lots of mistresses in Ephesus if you wanted to, and you didn't have to marry them, and that was, that was fine. Um, so, but... 1 Timothy 5.9, this exact same phrase, one woman man, uh, is used for widows. One man woman. Not talking about there having multiple husbands. It's talking about sexual fidelity, marital faithfulness in a monogamous marital relationship. That's what it's, it's referring to there. So probably that's not what it's, it's meaning. Second thing people have, have said is, well, this means elders must be married. You want an elder, he has to be the husband of but one wife. He's got to be married. Single guys, sorry, that's the way it is. Problem with that is Paul, the guy who wrote this, was single. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says singleness is a good thing. You should head that way. And in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 and 2, Paul says that he was an elder. Paul was single, and yet, but Paul knew that. And Paul claimed to be an elder, so probably it's not saying elders have to be married. Though others have said, well, what this means, next slide, is that widowed men uh, who've been remarried cannot serve as elders because they've had more than one wife in their lifetime. And this is, and it's a, I suppose this is a, an option as well. Except for Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that if in fact your spouse has died, you're free to remarry. It amazes me that he would say, you're free to, you're fine in the Lord, this is a great thing. But then hold it out as a prohibition for leading his church in any way, shape or form. So probably that's not what he's referring to. This is probably what he's referring to. The phrase one woman man speaks to marital and sexual fidelity in a monogamous relationship. It talks about, and the term itself is going to uh, prohibit any form of, of sexual deviancy, any form of marital unfaithfulness. Um, it would talk about things like, we refer to things like pornography or um, flirting, or th- th- it's, that's, that's where that might go. Also notice that this phrase is in the present tense, like all the rest of them. Now, if you look at the rest of them, when, when Paul says this person must be hospitable, he's not saying he had to always be hospitable in his past life. This guy might have been a real idiot in the past life. But right now, you're getting this guy, you want him to be an elder, you better make sure that right now, it's in the present tense, he must be hospitable now. Now, it doesn't say that he could never have ever gotten into alcohol. He could never have been a wine-bibber or a drunk person. He's not saying that, but he's saying right now, it's in the present tense, right now, he must not be given to drunkenness. He's not saying that in the guy's past life, he had to be gentle. But right now, he better be gentle. He's not saying in the past life, he had to uh, be able to teach God's word. He might not have cared about God's word. But right now, he's, he's saying that right now, your elder regarding his, his spouse needs to be Faithful to his spouse. 
to be committed to her as well. So there are different interpretations. Now, as we talk about this idea, here's the key question. The key question is, can divorced men be elders? The question is, and as we talk about this, please, you've got to know, I mean, I'm very conscious that whenever we mention the D word, it's not just theory for some people. And it's not, let's just argue about nuances of, of theological terms. It's very real. And it opens up pain. And really, that's not what my goal is. It's not what we want to do in any way. So I, I, I understand that. But this is a huge, huge question. Now, regarding divorce, let's just say a couple of things. First of all, divorce committed prior to salvation is covered just like any other sin. Second Corinthians says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. All things are new. Paul was a blasphemer and a murderer before he came to know Christ. So any sin committed before you come to Christ, that's, that's done away. We got that. Secondly, God hates divorce. And reconciliation is always to be preferred. It's important for us to understand that. Malachi 2.16, you can't get more, more clear verse than this. God speaking, Malachi 2.16, I hate divorce. Pretty straight up. And you know who else hates divorce? Anybody who's been through it. I've got two brothers who've been through it. And the amount of emotional and physical and monetary and mental and spiritual energy to just negotiate and navigate through the beginning, especially the beginning stage, just it goes on and continues. It can really wear you out. They would say, man, I hate this. This is a bad situation, just bad. That's why reconciliation is always to be preferred because marriage is a picture According to uh, a scripture, uh, Ephesians 5, marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Where Jesus said, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. You can't dissolve it. Once you're in Christ, you're there. And so when a marriage can be ripped apart, it messes up the picture. And I think that's part of the reason why God says, reconciliation is always to be preferred. Now, see, divorce is always the result of sin. Jesus is talking in Matthew 19 about divorce. And he's got this picture out that, you know what, God hates divorce and divorce is a, a, not a good thing. And so his apostles push back on him and go, whoa, 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 Jesus. Moses, back in the Old Testament, said we could divorce. He said you could write a certificate for divorce. Now, you're telling us that this is not a good thing. Well, how, how do you put these two together? And Jesus kind of, you're right, Moses said that. And given this fallen world, yes, yes, but you better keep in mind that from the beginning, this was not God's original plan. People could just get married and divorce. This, that's not the plan. The plan was to stay together. Wouldn't you love it if, in fact, a, a joyful, happy, healthy marriage was just, why would you divorce? This is God's plan to st for that. But we live in a fallen, broken world. So uh, even though divorce is always the result of sin, Please hear, the, hear this right. All divorce is not always sin. You got that? Divorce is always the result of, of sin, mine or someone else's, usually a combination of the two. But all divorce is not a sin. God gives us, Jesus gives us two different reasons in Scripture why divorce is permitted, grounds for divorce. Again, never, never is that the plan. It shouldn't. 
But given our fallen world, given fallen people, two different reasons. First one is in the case of sexual morality. Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. That word sexual immorality is the word pornea. We get pornography from it. It refers to any form of sexual deviancy. Um, In the context of marriage, uh, sexual involvement with somebody outside your covenant, outside of your, your spouse. Jesus says, any time you have a spouse that's involved there, getting close to grounds. Now, please hear me. If the offending party is repentant and is truly sorrowful and is willing to leave past relationships and, and make amends and, and move forward, or is it God's plan is always reconciliation? He's got a book in the Bible. I know, I know the context is between himself and Israel, the book of Hosea. But the picture he uses is between a husband and wife, and the wife goes off after other lovers, but she repents in the end, and he reconciles with her. Uh, if, in fact, the party is the offending party is sorrowful and, and willing to reconciliation. A second ground for divorce is the case of desertion or abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Paul says, but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. This is Corinth. you got nothing but pagans. And so pagan couple, one of them, Paul's there preaching, one of them comes to know Christ. The other one doesn't. And now suddenly there's a tension, right? And the one is saying, you know, we should take our kids to church. And we should should maybe um, live like we're Christians, and the other one said, whoa, 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 hey, you can do that, but I'm not interested in that. That's not where I'm going. That's not what I'm about. And we used to go do all these things, and now you won't come with me anymore to do these things. And, and this other person said, well, yeah, I want you to come with me to do these church things. He said, no, I'm not doing that. And so Paul says, if the unbeliever leaves, the believer is free. What do you, what do, you do? They're, they're free. Um, those are the grounds that... Jesus says that given these two specific situations, it's permitted in this fallen world. Now, E, uh, simply because the one spouse did not file for divorce does not render them free. This is important because you've heard this. You know, I didn't file. My spouse filed. Well, let me give you a scenario. It's real. Uh, She filed. He didn't file. She filed. But he was an idiot. And he was mean and uh, hurtful in many ways, doing stuff he ought not to be doing. And she said, enough. And she felt, I'm not excusing her action. She filed. But this guy is not suddenly the innocent party. Well, I didn't want it. Well, you know, his, his actions led to the demise of that relationship as well. So just because uh, I didn't file doesn't mean I'm innocent. Divorce does not necessarily disqualify a person from serving in ship. Our denomination, uh, Christian Missionary Alliance, has recognized that this is the word, what the Word of God says. Um, next slide. The denomination itself has said two reasons, sexual morality and ab- abandonment, desertion by an unbelieving spouse. If, in fact, those are the cases... An individual, a man, may serve as an elder or even a pastor in the Christian Missionary Alliance because this is what Scripture says. In our our position uh, paper, 
uh, just in the study, vast amount of, of conservative evangelical scholarship. John Piper, John MacArthur hold to this as well. Now, what this does do is this, this requires lots of other questions, like in a nominating committee, for example. It requires questions you, you have to ask. Tell us about that, and how did it end, and why did And you've been remarried now for X number of years. How has that gone, and is Christ the center of that relationship, and were there kids, and where are they at, and how did you work through that? There's just a lot of more questions that have to be asked. But divorce in and of itself, generally speaking, doesn't disqualify any individual from serving. Now, uh, bottom line, what I think Paul is telling Timothy and Titus is when you get a spiritual leader, they're going to be in charge. You check out their family, check out their ability to make commitments and keep commitments, especially in the covenant relationship marriage, the one person who knows them better than anyone in the world. How are they doing? They're, they're, you know as well as I do, guys who are still married, they're married, but they're not following this. They're not faithful to their wife. They are players or they're into pornography. Their mind is somewhere else with other people on a regular basis. Or, or they are negligent of their wife or they are not investing in that relationship. They really don't care. That would be a violation of this. Just because someone is married doesn't mean they keep this either. We've got to make sure we understand stand that, that, that just because they're married doesn't mean this is, this is clean. Application. What do we do with this? Well, a couple different things. First of all, guard your marriage. You might think, we're okay right now. We're okay, yeah. But you need to know that there is an enemy. And I'm not just talking hell. Hell, certainly, but society. Uh, you have a sinful heart. Your spouse has a sinful heart. You, you need to guard your, your marriage because if you don't, it is going to be very vulnerable. Uh, second, this is related, and that's invest in your marriage. I don't know if you've ever been to Family Life's so Weekend to Remember. It's a great marriage conference. It's been going on for years and years and years. They're all over the United States. Teresa and I have been, I think, at least twice. The first time we went, I say that this saved our marriage. Because I had some thinking that wasn't, there were some issues, and, and I just uh, needed clarity. I mean, you're blind to blind spots, right? I don't, it was all this... Until I heard and understood God's teaching. It was just very, very helpful. It's coming to, I wish one was coming to Erie. It's not, but one is coming to Cleveland in, in February. We have flyers at the information desk. I would pick it up, pick up a flyer. Even if your marriage is incredible, you tell me it can't get better, go. It's a great, great thing for you to do. Invest in your marriage. Family life uh, weekend to remember. Thirdly, maybe you are going through a divorce. You've gone through a, a divorce. And there is just, a, an, a, even today, maybe this was a long time ago. Maybe you're in it right now. Maybe it's a lot of pain still. Maybe you had no one to walk through with you. Maybe no one helped you process this. Or maybe at the time you just weren't able to process it. Our next, and we do an incredible ministry here called Divorce Care. Our next session starts in January. Chuck and Mary Beth Masters run this. And if you know them, perfect people to be running it. They understand. They know. They're there. Uh, not just that they, had, that they had the pain. They've got an incredible relationship today. Let me encourage you. Uh, on your little bottom of your, your, your new card off, off the back of the, that uh, bulletin, 
when you fill that in, just write. We're going to take up an offering in a little bit. Just stick that in there. But if you write on the bottom, DC or divorce care, I mean, you just all you're writing by saying that is I want some more information. And they'll con- we'll get people in contact with you just to tell you what it's about, when it starts, and all those kind of things. Um, finally, look to him. Um, if you're going through this now or however long back or you're afraid you're going to be going through it, there's an incredible amount of, of pain and angst. And uh, I can tell you about me. I had other issues. But I remember there was a time I thought I was just heavy depression. I was just going to blow up. I wasn't going to make it the next minute. I was, they were going to be pulling me out somehow. That's the way, where I was at mentally. And I just remember praying, oh, Lord God, please give me the strength for just one more minute. Please, just one more Then when that minute was up, thank him. God, thank you. Give me strength for one more. Please, just one more, Lord. Please, I'm not able to, I'm not going to make it. Please, would you help me? Well, then maybe five minutes, maybe that day, maybe the next day. I don't know how he will redeem things. God is God. He's about redemption. You don't want to be holding on to false hope. But I, I, I do know this. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Good shepherd cares for his sheep. He says he knows his sheep by name, which means he knows me, he knows you. He knows the pain and the hurt and the questions. He knows what we need. He's the good shepherd. He didn't have to pick that title for himself, but he did just to tell us about him. And when we lean into him and we look to him, we can trust him. And he can redeem. And he can bring about something beautiful. He can bring about something wholesome. He can use that which there's no way in the world we look at right now. We can say this is is so hopeless. It is without him. Him, there's hope.